Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives at Economist Impact, an arm of the Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast is supported by Philip Morris International as part of an Economist Impact research programme called the Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation could be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we look at how to best infuse and lead a culture of innovation. My guests today are Professor Viva Gabba and Jimmy L. Pai. Professor Gabba is the Berghaus Loist Chaired Professor of Entrepreneurial Leadership at INSEAD in Singapore. She focuses on how organizations learn and how it impacts their ability to innovate and adapt, especially in discontinuous environments. Jimmy Tai, President and Chief Executive Officer at Primer Group of Companies with core businesses in the retail and distribution of premier consumer goods and industrial products across 13 countries. Professor Gabba, Jimmy, thank you for joining me. The Innovation Quotient is designed to examine the extent to which innovation ecosystems enable or impede innovation for progress. And part of the index is informed by this global survey of 4,000 business leaders, where we ask questions about work culture, which we further break down into employee culture, leadership culture, and organizational culture. It must be said that the average score out of 100 is only 49.7, which suggests plenty of room for improvement. But I also wanted to highlight that the Philippines ranks fourth overall out of 40 countries in this pillar and posts the highest scores for employee culture and leadership culture. Professor Gabba, if I could come to you first, why is it that, according to our survey at least, business leaders find it difficult to inculcate and lead a culture of innovation? Andy, thank you for inviting me. Um, I think there are a couple of reasons. One of the most important one is really lack of clarity around what the innovation agenda is of the firm. So if you are kind of unclear about, you know, why the innovation matters and how it matters for your business, it's really hard to inculcate or shape a culture that really supports it. Then there is, of course, the paradox of success. If a company is successful in their current businesses, they tend to get a bit complacent about innovation. So there is no visible sense of urgency about investing time or effort in exploring new ideas that can potentially disrupt the status quo for the company. And the third reason really is, you know, many of the systems and practices that you have at the organizations are all set up to support and reinforce the current business. In that case, you know, even if you have innovative ideas and if they are supporting the current business, they tend to get through those systems and processes, but breakthrough ideas, very, very difficult. And finally, you know, shaping culture in an organization takes time. It takes, you know, consistent message uh, over time and really matching your actions to everyday behaviors in the organization. And just to be clear, these findings, observations are at the at the global level, they would be applicable around the world. Correct. Okay. You talked about some of the challenges there around lack of clarity, the paradox of success and so on. But what are some examples of best practice as well? One of the things that we see in companies who are relatively more successful in coming up, especially with breakthrough innovations, their top management has a very visible and long-term commitment to the innovation agenda of the firms. This is also about 
hiring the right people, especially in the senior positions, people who are almost able to appreciate the strengths of the company, but also value the importance of exploring new ideas, new innovations for the long-term survival of the company. And then it's really about shaping the context, right? Creating the time and space and opportunities for, for the employees of the companies to come up with ideas and giving them resources to really be able to explore those ideas till it becomes obvious about whether those ideas have potential or not for the company. And finally, I think this is a difficult one, but it is important also to make the employees of the companies feel psychologically safe about taking smart risks. Innovation doesn't come without taking risks. Yes. As luck would have it, we do have a senior business leader with us uh, in the form of, uh, of Jimmy Tide. But first of all, as a business leader for the Philippines, congratulations on the score that, that we're seeing uh, in the index for the Philippines. Um, are you surprised with the, the very strong showing that the Philippines has posted in this index? Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Andy, for this uh, opportunity to participate in this podcast. I totally agreed with uh, Professor Gaba about the observation of why innovation is a challenge. I see that very evident in so many organizations. But Philippines has been, uh, I would say, gone through very long challenges in terms of political support, in terms of economic conditions. Uh, we went to you know, uh, people's power that caused uh, instability in my lifetime. We also went to economic crisis of capital flights and all this hyperinflation. What's driving force here is the private sectors, you know. It's always been a survival crisis mode. It's about how you adapt the environment, the background. And I think that sort of give us a very strong, resilient character, you know. Not only that in terms of human attribute disaster, but we also encounter natural disaster. I mean, we're one of the countries that have most typhoon, earthquake eruptions. So we've been through, through a very, very tough situation. Just to highlight also about the recent COVID, you know, we have a very early gathering with the international group. Each country give an anecdote of what's the government doing in you know, subsidy, especially Singapore, giving a lot of subsidy. But in the Philippines, is the private sector from all the big and small organizations contributed to those people who are dislocated or temporarily lost their job during that period. So it's very evident it's the thriving forester are coming from the private sectors. Thank you. That's very interesting to hear. You're linking the challenging political economy environment and that sort of fostering a need for innovation for the private sector to take the ball and, and run with it because nobody else is going to be helping you with it. Um, one thought that came to us when we were looking at, at the findings as well, we, we also know that the Philippines is demographically a, a young country as well. And I wonder how much demographics play into this, um, into this sense of optimism or this sense of looking for something new. Is that a relevant factor, do you think? Absolutely. So we're very, very young. Even in terms of our technology, in technology, it was a bit uh, uh, setback or a little bit slower than the other neighboring countries. But the, the creativity I can see from the Philippines, the creativity, you know, uh, how, how they capitalize whatever resources they have, the ability to adapt. So right now, even in their house, in their, even in their home, weak interconnectivity, internet, I think it's only the Philippines, there are not many countries that have internet shop. People spend so much time there. So that's where I'm seeing also the, how they capitalize the technology, even on limited resources. 
So I, I would say even from our business, because we are in the retail, we also see the shifting of the online shopping. And it's really ramped up during the COVID period. As a traditional shoppers, you know, there's always saying you have to touch and feel this thing. But when I check with my kids how they shop, I said, are you buying this stuff without even knowing how does it look? So I can see a major shift in terms of uh, demographics behavior. So this is something that I would say quite consistent with the uh, the trend of the global, the, the youth, especially the millennial, the Gen Z and alpha, whatever. Yeah. Professor Gabbard, to come back to you, when you were listing some of the challenges there, you were talking about taking risks. I wonder if I could ask you to expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, Andy, is it okay if I react to something that Jimmy said? Because it's very interesting of what, uh, yes. what uh, Jimmy, you highlighted, because you were giving me sort of through your experiences in Philippines and what's going on on the ground there, uh, very beautiful illustrations of what we call an effectuation logic in academia. <laughs> but basically what that means is when we think about creating new businesses, about entrepreneurship, right? So we think about, you know, in a very top-down fashion, here's an idea, what resources do I need to assemble in order to nurture and incubate that idea and build something out of it? But what you were illustrating is something which is, you know, a different way of thinking about it. This is what I have. This is at my disposal, the resources. What can I make do with it? And how do I create new ideas how should I let my creativity flow through, you know, what is available to me? Um, so I just just wanted to, you know, uh, react to some of your observations yeah. and comments. And I think another really good example of, of Jimmy, what you were saying earlier on about the importance of that socioeconomic context yeah. within which yeah. you're operating as well. Yeah. So, Professor, to come back to you on, on this issue of risk, yeah. fear of failure and, uh, and so on. Yeah. So when we think about failures in the company, Failures are mistakes. Mistakes are bad. And if somebody made mistakes, we need to find out who made the mistakes, who's accountable for it, who's responsible for it. And so it really sort of devolves into a blame game. And that's not really helpful. And especially in the context of innovation, because in innovation, what you're doing is, is you're exploring new ideas. You're evaluating the potential of those ideas. So you have to think of them like experiments, right? And I think there is a lot of wisdom to be drawn from these experiments, from these experiences, even from failure experiences, but it requires thoughtful reflection. But really, you know, thinking very deeply about what can they learn from it and, and how can they become smarter as a result of it and take better risks in the future, right? It helps you identify or spot mistakes early on so that you're not, you know, allocating enormous amounts of resources into something that you know is likely to fail. So it's really important in, in that sense. Jimmy, to come to you then, and, and everything that you just heard there, heard there about um, creating that sort of sense of safety, of, of learning uh, from mistakes, of, of approaches to, to risk and, and failure, how does that resonate with you? How, how do you approach these issues? First of all, we have to understand and accept innovation does not come cheap. We have more failures than success. I'll take my case, how we innovate, aside from the macro or the external factors, it's also within our business model, you know. On one end, we are very, very excited because we get the pulse of the consumer, but in the other fulcrum, we are largely dependency on the brand owners because we are just a representation of them, extension of them. And you know, as the low 
provides globalization, then it's easy for them to come in. So they take away our business so easily. So this is something that's been pondering us and how we pivot. So we developed a lot of plans and strategy, some failed, some successful, but this does not stop us being very vulnerable. So it's constantly struggling. Uh, failure, we just have to accept the failures because if you believe in your long-term vision, you might fail because of wrong execution, long strategy, or you might fail, you put up the wrong team. But if you believe the vision, the, you know, the long-term vision, you just constantly have to apply, you know, pivot. Uh, and of course, being a private company, we are not the mercy of the BE, the VC, or the shareholder. So I think in one extent, uh, we, we have that kind of benefit because uh, I would say really give credits to the founders and the, and the five partners started this company. Because when we started this company, it's not just about creating wealth. That's one of the objectives. But it's one also an organization that we would bound ourselves as a part of our foundation of friendship. And we will do something that we are fond of doing it and something that we want to feel uh, beyond the rewards of financially. We want to create something that we can really call it's our own creation. I mean, energy, passion, all this thing, it's one element. But the other element, as we progress, we realize strategy, human talent, process, technology comes into place. And, and until today, we're still learning into that kind of uh, discipline. That's very interesting. You raised there sort of ownership and, and governments and, and purpose of the organization as well. Um, if I could come back, though, to sort of dig a little bit deeper into your employees, your, your managers and so on, how, how are you reinforcing to them that taking risk is necessary, you need to innovate, and that if they fail, they're not going to get sacked. They're, yeah. In fact, they're going to be supported. Okay, 40 years ago, we just started up. The structure is very flat. The owner did everything from delivery until the collections until doing the sales. It's quite flat. As we progress, you start building hierarchy, you know. So I would say on a smaller organization to do experiment, to do this kind of innovation or, you know, it's much easier. Now, I would just tell you, recently we also created the so-called risk and investment committee. So it could be a counterproductive, but I think it's also balancing how to discipline ourselves. As the founders, you know, it's always been how we inspired our team. Uh, we practice uh, psychological safety. I would take pride today. There are two things. During the height of pandemic, we asked everybody to do belt tightening and salary cut, which I would say 99.5% of our staff or our team members really embrace that. Secondly, we never fired people because of wrong strategy or failures. We fired people because of characters, uh, being integrity issue, disrespectful, you know, a misalign of the cultures and values. But in terms of uh, experimental failure, especially right now, you know, in the midst of digital transformation, you know, and this requires a lot of investment as well as experiment because I would say I have to admit ourselves, I'm not a tech person, but on the flip side, these are inevitable for the next growth by, you know, talking, upskilling, getting more external people who are aligned in our vision. For us, it's more critical, more than the, more than the former, as I've just explained. Mm, thank you. First of all, I'm, I'm going to come back to you on what we've just been hearing there from Jimmy and that sort of approach to risk and, uh, and innovation. Is this common as you look out globally or, or, or is what Jimmy's just been describing something quite specific and, and the exception to the rule? And, and I guess layering on top of that is, is the ownership structure as well and the extent to which that impacts on 
attitudes towards taking risk and uh, and innovating. So I, I guess two questions there for you. Right. I think we see this more broadly. So, uh, of course, there is, you know, variance in how effective are companies in terms of doing this. But more broadly, I think there is a lot of awareness about two things, which was reflected in Jimmy's comments as well. Um, the first thing is, I think there is, you know, as Jimmy said, innovation is expensive, right? It requires resources. So companies are trying to figure out, can they approach it in a more sort of a disciplined way? And in the context, you know, um, the lean startup methodology, which is so popular in the startup world, now the big corporates are saying, can we bring that thinking, that discipline into the organization where we are starting small, we are doing experiments, we are trying to test our assumptions, to test our hypotheses, right? Are the ideas that we are working, are they acceptable to the market? Are they really going to have opportunity to scale up and become big sources of revenues for the company in the future, for example? Um, so using disciplined approach to evaluating ideas, to testing the assumptions and the hypotheses that underlie those new ideas early on so that, you know, you can spot corrections, you can pivot, you can sort of, you know, avoid some big surprises down the line. Uh, I think companies are also sort of recognizing that failures that comes from running these kind of experiments are not bad. And so they're becoming more tolerant about it. Of course, you know, it takes a while for them to really sort of uh, communicate to the rest of the organization. And just on that point of sort of learning from failures, what, what are some of the practical ways in which you, you can capture that learning, understand it, and then feed that back to the organization? So I think the most important thing is a thoughtful reflection. So for example, you can have certain failures, which is, you know, happening because you deviated from very well-established procedures that were there in the company. This happened because maybe lack of attention, not having the right kind of skills or capabilities, right? But then there are failures which are happening because you tried something, it allowed you to test your assumptions and you realize you are making wrong assumptions about the market, about the customers, about the value of your idea or the value proposition of your ideas. Then the question is, are we changing our assumptions? Are we doing something to be more calibrated with the market, for example. Uh, so, you know, it really requires a sort of a reflection which not just asks what failed, but why it failed. Jimmy, I'd like to come to you on this issue of or assumptions around risk and, and learning from mistakes and so on. But I'd like to ask you where innovative thinking comes from in your businesses, which in many cases operate in highly competitive environments. Is it, for example data-driven innovations that are coming out of the, the data that you're gathering from your interaction with your consumers? Or is that something that's coming up more organically from within the organization? I think basically as a startup, at the very beginning, the formative stage of our company, it's more of about intuition. It's more about uh, what you read, what you research, looking at more of long-term vision. You're more predictive that, okay, things will definitely change because uh, people start talking about this kind of issue. So you start thinking about what to change a business model. Of course, it aided by data, with more analysis, with more stats right now, and then combine that with your intuition and research, then become more accurate, I would say. Using data is still relatively new, 
how much data can you leverage this one is something we're just still learning. Being in the retail, we have touch point, you know, with our consumer, we have about close to a million data, you know, but how do you mine it? So it, it takes a certain skill and it takes a certain experience how to, I would say, put all those algorithms together and make a predictive uh, forecast. Uh, but of course, right now, there's still, uh, I would say, we're still struggling because of uh, limited talent pool or even let's say the available talent pool is something that everybody's competing in and if the question is also can we afford it because again this is also needs a substantial investment so i would say it's a combination in terms of uh intuition data and of course circumstances will compel you you know that this model will no longer work i'll give you another case of example right now the, the globalization where investors coming in take over the market. So the model of distributors becoming less and less, you know. So what we're doing right now is to build that infrastructure, whether you are brand owner coming to the market, you still need a warehouse, you still need a digital marketing or, you know, all the back end kind of thing. So that's exactly what have we started two, three years ago in preparation of this advent of global company coming to the market. Of course, when you start building up uh, all these things, it costs funds, it costs money, and it won't give you the return so immediate. But wait until five years, 10 years, then you see the relevance of it. I think it's also about how patient and how deep is your pocket. I'd like to just um, turn to one more topic, if, if I may. And, and, and part of the, the rationale for the innovation quotient is to focus on innovation for socioeconomic progress. So um, innovations that in some way going to lead to better societal outcomes is going to in some way deal with some of the challenges that we have in, in society, such as inequality, financial inclusion, climate change, and so on. And Jimmy, if I could just stay with you on that as well, to what extent does this type of broader holistic thinking around the role of business within society shape your strategy and mission at, uh, at the Primer Group? I'll tell you a story, you know, uh, way back 2007, people talk about environment and we also can see the shape of the lifestyle, you know. So at that time, we get a few outdoor brands for our part of, I mean, part of our category in the travel and outdoor. Especially we get prominent brands like Columbia, Patagonia, all these things. So we decided to say people are spending their money in the clubbing. They go home early in the mornings. So how can we shift that time? Because outdoor, you have to, it's a shift of discipline. You have to wake up in the morning, not go home in the morning. So when we, when we started this, uh, we started a concept store, very bold. We built a 2,000 square meter standalone outdoor store, just like in America, they have the REI. Then so people say crazy, you know, who would shop this kind of outdoor, you know? But we have a very, very strong campaign. We have a very strong marketing campaign. And we work with a lot of stakeholders such as a local community where they lack of promoting their, their resort. We also work with a tourist operator. We work with the government of tourism. And with that initiative, we work with the Department of Tourism. We started promoting Philippines as a destination for outdoor, such kind of thing. So we sponsor Filipino athletes to climb the seven summits. We sponsor scientists to do discovery of flora, fauna, birds, you know. Out of the 600 endemic birds, you can find a third of that only in the Philippines. So immediately, we organized with the Department of Tourism a bird-watching destination. And we promote it in UK because UK is the most bird watchers. So those are the initiatives that we started I mean, working, business as well as social, as well as your partner CSR, as well as, of course, the benefit would be, you know, ultimately it's our business. Yeah, yeah. 
So thank you both for a very engaging discussion. But before I let you go, just one final question. Professor Gabber, we've been having a wide-ranging discussion there on fostering and, and leading a, a culture of, of innovation. We, we looked at some of the, the challenges and how to address some of those challenges as well. I wonder if you could share with us your sort of final thoughts, um, perhaps based on your research or observations on what you see really working very well in fostering that sense of innovation. When you think about innovation, it's really about looking forward. It's about long-term survival of the company because no company can stay successful and do well by doing just what they're doing today. So they have to continually reinvent themselves, think about new sources of revenues, new customers, new markets, etc. So I think innovation is really moving yourself outside your zone of strengths, in a sense. And this is difficult, but it must be done. I don't think companies have a choice uh, here. And I think... Uh, it starts really from the top in that sense, having clarity or a vision around it, the importance of it, which is reinforced in everyday actions and behaviors of the company by the senior leadership, I think becomes the most important thing. Yeah, I totally agree with Professor Gaba, you know, innovation is always something, you know, it's more of a long term and patience and commitment more than anything else on these days and age where we have global issues like job politics, food security, climate change, all sorts of uh, global issues, you know, poverty, you know, all these things, corruption. And I think more than ever, the, the whole sectors of humanity should work together and address this global issue. It's not only the government, it's not only the NGO, not only the business sector, but the I think the more challenging here is about how to educate. Uh, I was also influenced, especially talking to yeah, very high level of people. Then you realize the, the seriousness of all these issues. But normally on a day-to-day, -day, when we're just surviving on food, shelter, and clothing, this is something that it does not bother you. But in reality, in the next generation, they will surely this would become their first issue more than anything else. Yeah. I really like Jimmy's closing comments because it sort of says that the senior leadership, if they're enlightened and see the value of creating innovation, which is not just for satisfying shareholder value, but something that benefits the society as a whole, but it's challenging to sort of, you know, weave it into your everyday work because these are different goals. And a lot of times your goal of uh, your revenue or profitability goals can collide or conflict with these more social-oriented goals. So what becomes important is how do you make these trade-offs on an everyday basis? Well, thank you. And um, on that note, I'm going to draw this episode to a close. My guests today have been Professor Viva Kaba and Jimmy Tai. Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.